Hey, Stephanie, you know how we follow the courts and the intricacies of uh, international justice all the time? Yeah, we do. Well, can you imagine that there are, in fact, a ton of people out there for whom this is a huge world that they suddenly have to get into? I'm thinking about like last year when there was the uh, hearing at the International Court of Justice on um, genocide. Yeah, that was a really big deal. And so many people came, uh, activists came to, to look at this. And it was uh, Gambia um, filed a claim against Myanmar uh, because of the crackdown against the Rohingya minority. And um, we had the titans of international justice kind of battling it out in court. Yeah, we had in the red corner, Philippe Sands. He was on the Gambia team and he was uh, arguing very strongly on... Uh, the gender aspects of it, which we've covered before, and that uh, Myanmar had had actually breached bits of the Genocide Convention. Yeah, and in the blue corner, we had William Shebas on behalf of Myanmar saying that they should have a really narrow definition. This couldn't be genocide. There wasn't enough uh, people uh, and trying to kind of really keep a narrow idea of what it takes to have commit genocide. But also remember, we had all those activists in town. Um, so I was able to have a chat to them. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. So before we get to the chat with the activists, uh, let's just have a quick recap. What are people going to be looking at with the ICJ judgment, which is coming up this week? Well, the judgment is going to be interesting to see um, what they exactly or uh, if they order provisional measures, which are kind of like emergency um, measures to stop what's going on while the court takes time to look at the complaint in full. And usually the court is very general. They just kind of order, don't do anything that would make it any worse. But Gambia has asked some very specific things in these uh, requests for provisional measures where they ask specifically for um, that uh, Myanmar should have UN uh, investigative teams have access, that they shouldn't destroy evidence and that they should report to the court all these times. So it's going to be really interesting to see how much the court takes over from that Gambian if they're really going to set up a kind of monitoring system. While the um, discussions were going on in the court, um, I managed to talk to some of the different Myanmar activists who are based all over the world. Maybe that's a sign of how many Rohingya have had to actually leave Myanmar um, during the last years. I got to hang out with some of them when we were doing a YouTube broadcast to try to explain back to people in uh, the refugee camps what was actually going on here in The Hague. And I got to talk to three of them, and I'm sure I'm going to mangle their names, but here goes. Wai Wai Nu, she's Rohingya. Um, she actually lives in Myanmar itself, and she's studying law at Berkeley uh, in the United States. And then there was Yasmin Ullah. Um, she's also really young and she's also studying and she's uh, Canadian as well as Rohingya. And she's part of the Rohingya Human Rights Network. And then Myra Dagao Pau. Sorry about the pronunciation. She's not Rohingya, though. She's Karen. And she's this kind of really seasoned human rights lobbyist. And she heads up the US campaign for Burma. And they 
all spent time after our YouTube work to explain to me how they see their roles. And because my editing skills aren't actually brilliant. I've edited it a bit so that we can listen to what uh, they said together. So this podcast very often uh, interviews uh, academics and practitioners and people who are working day to day in the courts and they've all got all this amazing language that they're using and they understand all of the detail. And then you guys come in. You're the activists and you're the people who have to explain to your people back on the ground what's going on and you have to understand everything that's happening in the court. So tell me, how did you start your work as an advocate, Maya? How did you begin? Um, I used to tell people, for people to understand easier, I, I used to tell people I was born with it <laughs> because I was born as an totally displaced person. How many times my villages were burned down, I have no, I couldn't even count. And then uh, uh, by mid-90s, um, then I became a refugee overnight, had, having to flee uh, fled, uh, from Burma into Thai side. And then being a refugee long enough. So then finally I resettled and moved to the U.S. And then that's the only time when I started realizing that Yes, I'm a normal human being. I have a place where I can call home. And finally, I was naturalized, and that makes me feel I belong to a country. Otherwise, before then, I've never had an, an identity card or anything. So I was like internally displaced slash... Um, um, what, what is the word? Um, Sounds like you almost didn't exist. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't belong to any country. So, but anyway, stateless, um, stateless yeah, stateless. So, um, but then uh, for some reason, uh, I guess something that is in my blood where I come with the, the, the talent of uh, being an activist, I guess, since I was a little girl, I would go out there and I, when I see something that is injustice, I would just like name it. So um, when I came here, I... Um, I work, but also at the same time uh, going to school. And so I did advocacy at the UN as well as later on moving to the US. So I guess that comes along with me for quite a long way. In fact, it seems that being an activist came to all these three women from a very early age. Uh, Yasmin Ullah's family went to Canada when she was little, but her Rohingya roots actually pulled her into activism. I grew up not actually wanting to be a Rohingya because that was something that was criminalized in so many different societies, not just in Burma, but also in Thailand and various different countries where we're, we are, you know, our people are still currently refugees. Um, but my, my mentality started to change when we started to be able to, you know, uh, to resettle in Canada. Um, and then suddenly that was, you know, that was something that was a culture shock where I realized everybody was able to be accepted as who they are, even if, you know, it's something that wasn't, you know, with them when they were born or, you know, some, some sort of labels that they didn't come, like being a transgender, being, you know, from the LGBTQ community, it was accepted, you know, not that we don't have problems in Canada, of course, I'm not, you know, whitewashing the entire situation, but it was more or less accepted that I was, you know, a Rohingya and no one had issues with it and that was really striking but 
it didn't hit me until 2017 that I was actually capable of doing something. Here was she saying 2017. In 2017, what happened was that after years of marginalization and kind of low-level conflict against the Rohingya, um, the Myanmar army took um, had a military crackdown on the Muslim minority in the Rakhine state, which saw soldiers burn villages, allegedly uh, mass killings, mass rapes, and it caused over 700,000 people to flee to neighboring Bangladesh. But Yasmin said that she also noticed uh, earlier in the months leading up to the uh, crackdown that things were happening. My families had to run on August 2017, you know, uh, on August 25th. My mom called me and she said, please pray for them. I knew from long before that that um, something was about to happen, something big, because my all of my uh, male relatives had to flee into the jungle at night because they were raiding the houses. Mm-hmm. And that was for months before that happened. And I was trying to tweet everybody and, you know, started to do things that I thought, you know, was you know, acquainted to being, like equivalent to being an activist or like calling attention of the world to it. I didn't know how to do it. I just started blindly. And then when it hit me that I was actually about to lose them, because I left my country when I was very young. I didn't know what my roots were. I, I actually, I was self-denial for most of my life. <laughs> um, and, and realizing that actually I may want to be connected to them. I want to, I want to learn my language. I want to learn my culture. It's something that I can actually be proud of. It, it was a weird feeling. And actually that knowing, you know, that on, during that time, August 25th, 2017, I lost contact with all of my families. They had to flee. They didn't have cell services. It was horrible, horrible time. We couldn't sleep. Um, And I realized, well, I thought this was bigger than I can actually handle. I can't go around changing the world. That's my, that's my mentality before. And now I was like, no way. Now you can change the world. I'm not, I'm not sure if I can do that, but, but I realized that I've got to do something. If I, you know, I don't know if you've ever helped, uh, if you've ever felt truly, truly helpless. That's what I felt. Being someone who's guaranteed to have freedom. And, you know, I was a citizen. I'm already a citizen uh, of Canada by that point in 2017. And I have this passport that's so powerful. I can enter so many different countries where the borders were, you know, so thin for us before, we were restricted into a tiny, tiny hole. Um, and now I can't even help my family. What's good is that? What, what good is it that I have a citizenship? So I started, you know, to do this, this crowdfunding online. We managed to raise $40,000 to $50,000 just within two months with someone who actually have no knowledge of how to do crowdfundings. We sent every penny there. And I realized, my God, this is not as hard as people thought. I could do this much. Why isn't, why isn't the government able to do more? YY says that she wasn't ashamed of being a Rohingya or an ethnic minority like the others, but she's always been a Rohingya advocate. I lived with stories, stories like Yasmin, stories like Myra, since I was very little. And I wanted, I always wanted to be who I am, actually, I always wanted to be Rohingya because I knew I was Rohingya and I knew who I was. But I also saw there are many, many other Rohingyas who didn't want to identify themselves as Rohingya because they cannot bear discrimination, persecution, it's dehumanization. 
But I was so lucky to have my father educate me who I was and how it is important our identity is, how it is not wrong to be a Rohingya. In, when I was 18, I was arrested. And inside the prison, I learned the entire world, the universe, the humanity, the people, everything, and specifically the feminism. I become a feminist. You know, I came to realize how hard it is as a woman to be in in a country like Myanmar. How they can be criminalized. How they can be uh, punished by the society. How they can face similar different uh, consequences uh, just because they are in prison. And all of this discrimination, stereotypes, and all of this uh, struggle of the women in the prison. And then and I decided to do something about it when I came out. But uh, instead, when I came out, what happened is, it, it was in 2012, I was 25 years old. Uh, so now I know, you know I'm so old, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maya's like, no. <laughs> I have exactly the same feeling. Have you seen my hair? Okay, okay. And the, my, my community has faced this tragedy. I mean, I already started to work on, the, on, on women and youth and on democratization, such and such thing. But when violence broke out against Rohingya, I started to feel that all these colleagues, you know, human rights defenders, democracy, activists, politicians started to see me differently and my people differently, and I couldn't tolerate. And I said I, I thought I could do something. Um, and, and then I started to realize that it wasn't easy. Although I was 25 years old, I was still seen as a girl, you know, uh, in, in my society, you know, in, in Burma or in, in among the Rohingya. I have no actually space to do something. So I created my own space because I, my voice is not heard. So I wanted to be heard and I wanted to lead. I wanted to uh, actually uh, solve the problem. I wanted to actually, you know, uh, fix the things. And I wanted to implement my missions and visions by my own. I don't want to be, you know, uh, Im implementing others' missions. So because I see how can things be fixed. So I wanted to do it, but I didn't have a space. So I created my own space with a couple of women. And it was so funny. And we end up having really enormous impact domestically in, in, in Bur inside Burma, as well as you know internationally when it's come to advocacy. And uh, so we've been able to like, kind of em empower many young generations in, the, uh, in Burma. I'm always grateful and you know, grateful that I have this courage to you know to do by my own, you know, to take a lead leadership. And I always appreciate and I always encourage others, you know, regardless of men and women, especially women, to do you know to do by themselves. You know, you don't have to wait for others' permission. You can do it, right? And that's the most important. And having that courage and to take actions is the most important. At the same time, you can make difference, you know, regardless of who they are. Now, those men who may not give me a chance or even may not talk to me, now they come to talk to me. And sometimes they even bring their daughters and, you know, ask me to teach them to become like me. I'm like, I don't have to teach them to become like you. You only, 
you know, you have to change your attitude and believe in them and give them chance to do what they want to do. That's it. Part of the job that all of these women have taken on is actually keeping their communities informed back home, especially when it comes to a big case like this one at the ICJ, which is full of technicalities. That's become even more important than usual. And Myra says that she's really had to put the work in. Um, It has a lot to do with reading, self-study. So, um, of course, I within the past two weeks since I... Yeah, at least uh, the last week since um, I I learned that I had to come here, then um, I literally had to start reading a lot and also listening a lot from both sides to see how much people in my community, so as the people in Burma or people from the other side of the aisle who are not agree with me, uh, understand this. and um, So that you can kind of pitch your advocacy at the right level? Right, right. Because here um, we're working with people at different levels. Some people understand more than I do. Some people understand less than I do. And some people have no clue. And that is why when uh, people come in and people from the other side of the aisle come in and uh, uh, invite them to come out and uh, support Suji, they come out without understanding what it is here. I'm pretty sure if they understand what it is, they would rather be with us, but I don't blame them because they don't know so much. Um, But of course, it is also partly my responsibility to understand as much as I can so that I know what I'm talking about, but also to educate people in my community so that they understand and they stand up uh, in solidarity because the most important for them to understand is this is not going to benefit just the Rohingya community. It might sound as if because a lot of people are telling them that this is just for Rohingya. So why are you guys going? Oh, you are going to be. The other day, um, uh, the day before yesterday, I read a news, uh, a comment in uh, on the Facebook saying that the Karen, because the Karen went to do the rally in front of the... The Karen or another ethnic group? Yes, my ethnic group, the ethnic group where I came from. Last Saturday, before I came, we also organized a rally at the Burmese embassy in D.C., and so, of course, we put it up on the Facebook, and then um, somebody was saying, uh, making a comment saying that uh, we, the Karen people, are the slave of Gab- Gambia. But that is why I'm trying to tell people in my community is that, yes, it may sound as if this is right now uh, pertain on the uh, Rohingya and genocide issues. But think about a, pic- a bigger picture and the long term. What if we are successful here? The perpetrators will be held accountable finally, and that's only then. The, uh, the persecution will be start decreasing and maybe get coming into a stopping point. Otherwise, we don't have anything better than this at this point. And Yasmin says that she's had a much longer road also to prepare herself as an activist. I didn't actually know what I wanted to be. I was in u- first year university when I, you know, when I left Thailand um, with the forged ID, of course. We were not allowed to live as a Rohingya in Thailand, just as Maya said um, earlier. And so I decided to go back to school in 2000, basically in 2017, I made a decision that I'm actually going to study political science. And I knew- You mean in order to kind of understand the bigger picture? Yeah, yeah. and also, you know, a thing that I think would be able to benefit my my community the most 
I decided that that was the time um, because at that time I knew about my family and we were starting to do the work on the ground and I started to raise awareness and do a bunch of other things and you know getting calls interviews and things like that I couldn't wrap my head around it of course at first I was like oh my god why am I so stupid about this why can't I just get it and that's just you know we beat ourselves down all the time because we don't know things well because we're women mm. <laughs> and I agree <laughs> um, but then I started to realize, you know, why why things weren't moving as fast as I wanted it to be. And I, you know, talked to politicians and we, we managed um, to have a lobbying day. <laughs> my, my colleague would say, no, don't say lobbying. We're just raising, raising awareness. This is, you know, more or less, basically. Mm -hmm. We managed uh, to, to basically gather around in Ottawa. I live very far from Ottawa, which is, you know, the capital of Canada. And we had this first trip where we go and talk to politicians and I just... Basically, my brain shut down because I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to talk about the issues that actually was relevant to me. And I didn't know the lingo, the jargons, the things that they were talking about. And I thought, oh my God, they're so much smarter than me. Um, but that's, that's not true. It's just that they knew more. Uh, they, they just knew more about, you know, things. And as I, as I started to realize that, you know, different stuff about political science and how, you know, theories came about and how all of the nation states are quite self-interest. They're acting according to that and, and they're not actually there to uphold the international law or the universal jurisdiction, uh, sorry, universal declaration of human rights or, you know, any other supposedly, you know, things that are crafted to protect and, and you know, basically further advancing the, the cause of humanity. So you have to understand states. You uh, have super to understand basic. that. And, and mm. I slowly got it. I slowly, you know, learned that from, from my classes. But also a lot of the things that I learned for the past two years were just listening to people, listening to, you know, someone like Weiweinu or Maya or, you know, listening to people um, who are reporters, um, reading the news. It's not always accurate, but it gives you a picture of what it what it actually is all about. And then, you know, slowly I kind of built my understanding up. I'm not saying that I'm an expert now in the legal, you know, mechanism on the international law, but I understand bits and pieces of it. And I, I can now go back to my community and I explain this to my parents, go, you know, my parents would just start asking me, oh, so what does the ICJ do? And what's the difference between, you know, ICJ and ICC? And then I... Like, well, you actually know a lot more than a lot of Dutch people, <laughs> if you can explain that. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, um, I, I just basically told them, hey, this is what I heard. You know, the ICC has to do with individuals and whatnot. So it was... It was a quite enlightening, you know, journey that I that I've taken. I, I haven't stopped learning and I'm still learning from all of, you know, the incredible women that are around me specifically. Um, and there are so many friends and allies that are lawyers and, you know, international um, advocates and, and organizations that have reached out and, and try to explain it to us. I'm slowly learning. And I'm, I'm sometimes I'm stumbling in the dark, but now that I have allies and people around me, I, I'm a little bit more secure in, in how I can actually reach out to people and say, I don't understand this. Can you explain to me what is what what is it that they were saying or or what is happening? And um, we see that in the Gambia's um, legal team, they were actually you know helping us in in trying to basically explain it to us what what the procedure would 
would look like, you know, things like that. And and I I'm I'm pretty sure that we're gonna we're gonna see more of them um, about that work. But we were wondering because YY actually knows a lot more about these processes because she's been studying international law at Berkeley. Uh, we were wondering is that um, is she going to be more positive about the the legal process? Will she be um, think that a lot more can come out of it, or will she be more realistic because she's more used to these kind of processes? Yeah, it, it may take time. The processes at uh, some time it might not think, feel people may not think that it's feasible. But for me, like. For us, for many, uh, you know, many of us, actually, why people say it's not feasible? We said it's feasible if we act. So, for example, like when we were uh, having discussions around uh, uh, commissions of inquiry on Myanmar a few years ago, like three years ago, there were divisions between us, the locals, like the Rohingyas and other ethnic people in Burma and some big NGOs, they said, okay, commissions of inquiry for uh, the whole country is not feasible. Uh, we can only ask for the Rohingya because of the intensity of their crimes. So it is only the feasible thing. And we said, no, this is strategically, it might, we may face backlash and it might create you know, more negativity in the country and it might not benefit we need to have this and we can do it if we ask together if we're united so, so you have to be clear on strategy and you have to be clear on on how you get your allies what we want we need to know what we want and we need to have faith on it and i have faith on it if we work on it we will get it even icc people say it's not feasible you know uh it's not realistic but i have faith so that was Waiwai Nu, Yasmin Ulla, and Myra Dagalpau. They're all Myanmar activists, and thank you so much to them for spending the time to chat to us. Uh, they were here in The Hague during the hearing at the International Court of Justice in December 2019. I really liked the way that they were able to give us this insight into their process of how they've become activists. Yeah, really kind of a look behind the curtains of these people that we see that show up at all these hearings and they're they're very good at advocating for their people and they're very useful to us as journalists because they can give own experience. But it's always very interesting to see how they experience these things that are often seen as very far away courts, very far removed from the people that it actually matters to. And these are people that actually come to these courts, but then it means they have to understand so much about it. So I'm always fascinated by how they manage to absorb so much in so little time. And we know that they're going to be absolutely glued to this outcome to see what the 17 judges have decided. Absolutely. And I thought what I liked most at the end is that Myra wanted to leave us really with a final thought after we talked to them so much about how much they had to do to get here and what they all had to learn to understand it. Being an activist or an, uh, an advocate is fulfilling. Yeah. It is. It is a lot of work. It is tedious. But at the end of the day, before you go to sleep, you realize how many lives you've touched. That is so fulfilling. Well, that's it for now. So um, bye. We'll be back again soon. Back again soon. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, 
home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.